Psalm 146. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no help. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he whose help is in God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord of his God, who has made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves his righteousness. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. By the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Thy God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Our second scripture reading today, in Genesis chapter 32, we'll be reading verses 22 through 31. The same night he got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise everything that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him in the hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And the man said, You shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with humans and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. The word of God. Our gospel text this morning is from the book of Mark, chapter 7, starting in verse 24. Mark, chapter 7, verse 24. And from there he set out and went away to the region of Tyre. He entered a house and he sorry, he entered a house and did not want anyone to know he was there. Yet he could not escape notice. But a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately heard about them, and she came and bowed down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician of Syrophoenician origin. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not fair to take the children's food and to feed it to the dogs. But she answered, Sir, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he said to her, For saying that, you may go, and the demons have left you. The demons have left you. Um, so she went home and found the child lying on the bed, and the demon was gone. And then he returned from the region of Tyre and went the way of Sidon towards the Sea of Galilee in the region of Decapolis. And they brought to him a deaf man who had an impediment of speech. And they begged him to lay his hand on him. And he took him aside in private away from the crowd and put his fingers on his ears. And he spat and touched his tongue. And then looking up to heaven, he sighed and said, Aphatha, we're going to say Aphatha today. Aphatha, that is be opened. 
And immediately his, his ears were open, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And then Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered it, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, He has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. The word of the Lord. Okay, so um, we're moving straight into the sermon from that this morning. And I'm going to be honest that I am slightly frustrated that a couple weeks ago I stood in front of you and I promised to preach the lectionary. Because not only did I promise to preach the lectionary, but I said that because it forces you to preach texts that are difficult. Texts that you do not love. And when I said that, I was thinking of texts like in Numbers that's kind of boring, like Deuteronomy where it's just the law. I was not thinking about parts of the gospel that are just very difficult. Um, so this morning, the Syrophoenician text, this one's difficult for me. I don't love it, and I didn't want to preach it, and I'm kind of mad that I got the Syrophoenician woman this week, and then Corey gets John 3.16 next week. Um, I don't find that to be fair, and I wish I could have switched. But anyway, we're going to dive right in because there's no other way to do the Syrophoenician woman. The Syrophoenician woman, by definition in this era of being a woman, she's already second class, right? She's a Gentile. And then she's not only a Gentile, she's kind of a Gentile from the other side of the tracks. So all of this, if you add it together and you had to place her on the Titanic, She's not with Rose, right? She's not on the top. She skips the middle completely, and she's with Jack in the underbelly of... Y'all seen Titanic. Don't play like you haven't. She's in with Jack in the underbelly of the Titanic, right? She's third class. She skips second class completely. She's all the way at the bottom. And so she decides that she needs something from Jesus, something only he can do, something only Jesus can cure. She needs him to heal the evil spirit that's within her daughter. She needs a touch from Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Do we see the compassionate Jesus that heals the ear of the man in the Garden of Gethsemane? Do we see the compassionate Jesus that sits beside a well and talks with a Samaritan woman for lengths of time? No, that is not the Jesus we get here. That is not the Jesus that we see. What does Jesus say? He said, why do we give good food meant for our children to the dogs? Now, the children being the Jews, right? The children are the people of Israel and the dogs. Well, that's the Syrophoenician woman. <laughs> that's her. And so that's why I don't love this part. I don't, it's not easy. This isn't the Sermon on the Mount where there's good things that are, it's not easy. There's no simple way to explain the words of Jesus here. And because of that, I'm going to press pause on the Syrophoenician woman for about five minutes, and I'm going to move to my favorite passage of Scripture instead. Um, the Old Testament text this week is one that I have preached on probably 40 times in my life. Um, this was my scripture growing up. In the denomination I grew up in, uh, they let young preachers preach on Sunday nights, or um, if you're having a revival from Sunday to Wednesday, then I got the least attended Tuesday nights. And um, every time that would happen, I would preach this text. This was the text I preached at youth camps and women's retreats, and any time they let me get a little bit in front of people, this was my text. So much so that when I was 19, I got a tattoo that says Peniel um, in Hebrew because I thought it was really cool. 
And because in Genesis 32, 30, it says, For I call this place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life has been preserved. And that's how I used to preach this text. I used to preach it as redemptive. And at the end of every revival service that I would preach, I would say, and have you met him today? Have you met God face to face today? He's the only one that can preserve life and with the eternal life that comes from heaven. So you do, do you need to meet him today? Now, I don't initially see redemption when I read this. I'm going to read it to you real quick again. This may sound redundant, but I want us just a reminder of what's being talked about in Genesis 32. And so in Genesis 32, let's move down to 23. He says, and it took him a while to cross the river, and Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he could not prevail against Jacob, he struck him in his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint. And then he said, let's go until the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go until you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then the man said, he shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for he has striven with God and with humans, and he has prevailed. And Jacob says, please tell me your name. And then he doesn't. And then he said, well, we call this place Peniel, for I've seen God face to face. What I see there is not a story of redemption for Jacob. What I see is wrestling with God. It's, it's the wrestling that we're talking about here. Now, let me say that it's, it's not wrong how I preached it initially. There are people that need to know Jesus. There are people that need that, that um, redemptive story to come. But I find that in the New Testament, right? I'm not finding that with Jacob in these moments. I'm seeing the wrestling. And what I see in that wrestling is that all the way back in Genesis, God gave us an opportunity. God, the God of the universe decided to give us permission to wrestle. That when things get hard and that there's things in this book that we don't understand, God is saying to us, please don't just sit out of your fear and your doubt and your unbelief, but please, please wrestle with it. Please try a little harder. Please know that I'm here. I've long since given up my daily Bible reading. I don't know about y'all. But in part, I gave up daily Bible reading because I was tired of feeling guilty about missing my daily Bible reading. So it was easier to quit. Now, But now let me clarify, it's not that I've given up on the Bible. But, um, and it may be different for you than it was for me, but the psalm a day wasn't nourishing my soul as much as I wanted it to. It felt more like an obligation I was fulfilling and not a discipline that was fulfilling. And so a few years ago, I decided to change it up. I decided to do something different. And I did something kind of similar in my prayer life as well. I just wanted to reimagine what these practices would look like if I took my preconceived ideas out of them and tried to find a path that worked for me. So this is where the concept of wrestling comes up. Over the past few years, I would take a passage or a character or a concept, and by that I mean the Sermon on the Mount, or Moses, or mercy. And I would take a period of time that had no definite end at all, and I would just chew on the subject. I would read the passage on one day, and then I would think about it all week long, and, and at the end of that time, I might grab a commentary and read about it a little more, and then I might get a whole book on the subject and spend a month just 
kind of going through that and reading it a little more and just take my time and walk through it. The difficult parts that I don't understand, I read and I reread. And I would pray and I would read the commentaries and then I'd pray and I'd talk it over at dinner with Corey and have conversations and then I'd read and I'd reread. And now what you're not going to do with this way that I now encounter scripture is you're not going to go through the Bible in a year. That's not something I do anymore. And I used to, does anybody else ever used to do that? You start in January and read the whole Bible in a year. I did that my whole adult Christian life until a couple years ago, but that's not how this practice has worked for me. I don't go through the Bible in a year anymore. It's not a Bible reading plan. But what it has done for me is it has increased my engagement with Scripture. It has increased my engagement with the text. Now, my nose isn't in this literal physical book every day, which to me was kind of freeing. Because although my, my, my hands weren't on the book, my head and my heart were. So when I'm driving down the road and in silence and I'm going over those passages in my head, and when I'm trying to figure out who I am in this story and who's God in this story and how do I apply these portions to my life, when I think about who I could be because of the text or who I should be because of the text, that's what grappling with this is all about. It moves us from a passive response to a participant in this thing called discipleship. Now, whether you do that on a daily basis and that's easier for you or it takes you months just to get through three or four verses, what it does is it moves it out of your morning coffee and it moves it into your world. It lets it linger. The point is to let it linger in our lives, to let it frustrate you a little bit, to push you to action instead of just standing still. And hopefully, just like Jacob, it changes you a little. It leaves you impacted in a way that you never forget. It follows you with every step in a way that you can't ignore. So how do we wrestle with this Syrophoenician text? Because it says some very complicated things. Some things that at first we can't wrap our mind around. Why was Jesus mean? That's all I get out of this. Why was Jesus mean? And I've read this text probably a hundred times in the last three weeks, over and over and over, trying to find an answer. So in my wrestling, I went to a secondary source because I cannot be the first Christian with questions. I cannot be the first Christian that misunderstands. We have the advantage of 2,000 years of church history and church people and people with questions. So we can go to them. We don't have to be an island. And we don't have to reinvent the wheel every time we read the Bible. We learn beside them, and we learn with them, and we learn from them. But also, we have to use our God-given discernment on every issue. A buddy of mine pastors a church, not in this area, but somewhere. That doesn't matter. But anyway, um, and I heard him preach on this text recently. And um, I was listening to it online on one of his podcasts. And what he said at first, he said, my initial takeaway with this is that Jesus used a racial slur. And I, I just ha- I turned it off. Like I couldn't even wrap my mind around it. I didn't know where he was going. He might have had a valid point at the end, but it was so egregious to what I knew about the character and the personhood and the life of Jesus that I knew in the discernment that God has given us that, that I, couldn't do, I couldn't deal with that. That wasn't okay to me. And I say all that to say that just because it's out there, it doesn't make it right. So keep reading. 
Keep studying. Keep going. I read Beowulf this past week, speaking of reading. And for those of you that remember, not intentionally, not because I wanted to. I'm taking a Britlet course. I didn't do it um, for fun. Um, but for those of you that remember this epic poem, you know that it's of pagan origin, passed down through centuries via oral tradition, and at some point, an Anglo-Saxon monk wrote it down. And because an Anglo-Saxon monk wrote down this pagan story, you have pagan story and Christian attributes all in it. He has ideas of the Almighty and things like that. And so, to me, sometimes when I look about this passage of Mark, I kind of hope in my heart that's what this is. I kind of hope that there was this beautiful story of redemptive Christian ideas and somehow this fallible guy named Mark that got to wrote it down kind of put his negative spin on it. That might not be what it is, but sometimes I hope that. My page is upside down. Um, there we go. Um, but I've seen some scholars say that it's not as bad as we make it sound either. In my reading this week, I said, well, I've read people say, well, it, they say they called her a dog, more like a puppy, more like somebody you wanted in your family, um, not somebody, it wasn't a bad thing. And I still don't get how calling somebody the puppy isn't a bad thing. Um, maybe you do. Maybe that, that helps your soul a little. It didn't help mine. It was supposed to, but it didn't. And because um, still, it was, you feed your children before you feed your puppy. You don't like your puppy as much as you like your kids. It didn't make, it didn't make sense to me. I couldn't reconcile that. But in my, more of my reading and more of my studying this week, I kind of had to think, what if the Syrophoenician woman is supposed to be the New Testament Jacob? If we notice in Genesis, Jacob doesn't seek out God to wrestle with him. God seeks out Jacob. God goes to Jacob and wrestles with him to the break of day. So what if that is all Jesus is doing here? What if he wanted to push the Syrophoenician woman just a little bit so she pushes back? That just like Jacob, there are good things at the end of this. And Jesus just wanted her to seek and search and try a little harder. Maybe he just wanted that encounter to be something that she would never forget, just like Jacob could never forget that encounter with God. Maybe he just wanted her to limp just a little bit. Immediately after that wrestling, Jesus performs a miracle. He heals the woman's daughter and the demons flee. He's moved by her faith. And then he breaks down all these barriers in his ministry too. No longer is he just for the Jews. He goes and he, he breaks down the class barrier and he breaks down the Gentile barrier. And right after that, he heals a blind or a deaf and mute um, Gentile man immediately after. And he said, woman, you have such great faith. She moved Jesus. And her wrestling caused enormous change. So if Jacob could wrestle with God, and if the Syrophoenician woman could wrestle with the word made flesh, then may we never cease to wrestle with the words that God has given with us. May we let it perpetually change us, I pray that I don't read the Bible the same way at 70 as I do at 30. I pray it changes me. And whether you're 6 or 86 in this place, my prayer for you is that the words consistently change you. Until like Jacob, we meet him face to face. Let us pray.